was a part of the church family when Sherry and I became the pastors over 20 years ago, and that's Bruce and Wadida Noah, and they're here somewhere scattered amongst us right there, and many of you, most of you don't know them, but uh, Sister Juanita was the secretary when I became the pastor. Brother Bruce uh, had a ministry to go and uh, visitation, and he would go and see a lot of the shut-ins, and he would take somebody with him. And I went with them many times, and they were just a wonderful couple, and they are here visiting today. And we want to say God bless you, and we're thankful they're here in service today. Amen. Thank you all so much. Each of every one of you be that been with us today. Listen, I'm going to get right into the preaching of the what's on my heart today. Um, I'm going to commence by reading a couple of passages of Scripture that's a little bit lengthy. I'm going to let you, if you don't mind, remain seated for that particular time. Now, this is not the text. It is a text that influences the preaching. I'm not preaching an expository sermon. I'm not going down line upon line, but I want to read it just to set the context of just the scriptures and how God speaks. Sometimes God speaks differently than the culture speaks, than even sometimes how I feel, even. The scripture does. So, you know, ancient Israel and Judaism and their synagogue services, oftentimes they would have a reading of the prophets, the law and the prophets that might not necessarily coincide exactly with the lecture or the uh, expounding upon a particular thought that would happen later. And that's a little bit what this is going to be like. So we're going to read in verse number nine. If you're here Wednesday night, some of this is where Jace was as he exhorted each of us on Wednesday night. So just, just read it with us. It's not a lot, but it's just kind of set in the context today. It says, let love be without dissimulation. You probably reach reading a um, different version than the one I'm reading, and you don't know what dissimulation is. Let love be without hypocrisy, it says. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Romans 12 and 9. I didn't probably give you all clarity. I'm sorry. Romans 12 and 9. Cleave to that which is good, abhor that which is evil. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Now obviously, just as I'll interject here, Paul's writing here to the Roman church that at that time had had a measure of persecution, but it would not be that long before Rome would burn at the hands of Nero Caesar and he would blame the Christians. And these scripture verses would need to be written on the tablet of their heart because they were going to face persecution. He said, rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as the life in you, live peaceably with all men. We strive to be peacemakers as Christians. There's not a very good amen in here to the word of God, but I'll just say it again. We strive to be peacemakers. But Paul did say there's some times in life when it's more difficult, but you strive to do so. He then said, and I'm sure this is more on a personal level than perhaps on a national level, but you always still glean from it. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. How many know God's a greater judge than we are? Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, let him drink. 
for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I could preach from a number of these verses of Scripture, and I could angle them in particular directions, but we're going to keep going for just a little bit into this 14th, or excuse me, this 13th chapter, and we're just letting this, we're just, we're just honoring the Word of God. Just to hear it. Let the room be filled with the Word of God. Right before I begin to teach or expound or share, you know, the things that I say can be met with criticism, but this is the Word of God. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. We support civil government, don't we? And we pray for civil government. Now, if you're a visitor, our church normally says more um, fervent amens. But today, they're, they're, they're a little bit, you know, I don't know. The cold weather, something has affected them. They'll warm up as we commence, I think. So, for rulers are not a... A terror to good works, but to the evil. How many know there's evil works in this world, right? And sometimes it demands a response, right? And um, and oddly enough, sometimes God will use <laughs> what what I would say evil rulers to bring judgment sometimes upon more evil, for lack of better words. Um, you can trace that back to Nebuchadnezzar when he brought judgment upon the people of Israel. In 586 B.C., when God said, that's my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan, but God used him to accomplish his objectives. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. And for this cause, pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. He that loveth another hath fulfilled the, the law. For this thou shalt, if it's not in your Bible, it's typically on the screen. For this, the ninth verse, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. So these are the, just some of the, the, the commandments of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai that I've been preaching about in the latter few weeks. Here Paul is referring to some of them, or some of these, and he said, it is briefly comprehended. He's saying that, that, that list that was recorded on stone by the finger of God, he said, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then it's almost as if Paul takes this just this exhortation beginning here somewhere along the 12th chapter, which is not chapters and verses at the time that he pins it, but for us here today it is. And, uh, and he kind of almost ends with a little bit of eschatological type emphasis of something related towards some type of cataclysmic uh, 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 event that could happen because he uses this phrase, knowing the time. Knowing the time, addressing the Roman church, but the time for them might be certainly different than the time for us, but the principles are still the same. You need to know the sons of Issachar, it says, understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Well, we need to grow from that, and we need to know the time. It's high time. I don't care who you are. It's time for you to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us, therefore, writing to the church at Rome, Cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, 
not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's a powerful passage of Scripture here in verses 11 through 14 almost stand out from the previous verses of Scripture where it's really speaking to the heart of the individual to respond to the things that have been spoken previously and that with the time at hand you need to adhere to the Word of God. So now we're going to ask you to stand up if you would today and we're going to back up and we're going to read one verse of Scripture in the book of Romans, the 10th chapter, which is where I've been, but not that verse that I've been reading. I've been reading the 8th verse. Here's a prayer for us here today. Not the 8th verse. Did I give you the 8th verse, Lori? Back it up with the 1st verse. You got time to capture it? That's the one I've been reading from, and I probably wrote it because I was so familiar with doing so. And I'm sorry, the 10th 10th chapter, it's the 1st verse. Let's read this one together. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That's a fair prayer. So here's the part of my title here today. My title of my message, part of it is Pray for Israel. And the people finally got a semi-hearty amen. But I don't want you seated yet. We're going to turn to another passage of Scripture. We're going to read six verses. First Timothy, Paul here writing to young Timothy, his son in the faith. We're now going to read in chapter number 2. Six verses, that will conclude this text. And there will only be two additional verses of Scripture read a little bit later in the sermon. I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men... To be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So I want to go back to my first title if we can, and that's what we're going to do. The first title is We're going to pray for Israel. And then we're going to put an and. Now because of this exhortation in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to pray for the Palestinians. We're going to pray for Israel, but we're also going to pray for the Palestinians. That's the call of the church. Amen? So we're going to pray. Father of heaven, I come to you today to ask for you to help us here today. To open our hearts, open our minds, that the spirit of the living God would help each one of us today to have a heart that is pliable, pliable to the work of the Holy Spirit, Father. God, we are not standing in the ashes and the rubble. We're not standing with blood, Father, pulled up around our feet as people have been a week ago. People are now and people will be in the immediate future. But our heart, the empathy and the sympathy and the compassion... Father, for those that know Christ should be awakened. For Paul himself writes, he said, weep with those who weep. And we do so today as we pray. We pray for Israel, but we also feel compelled, or at least I feel compelled, to pray for the Palestinians as well. God, I pray that you'll help me to speak. 
Help me to speak to this church family in Jesus' name. And all God's children said amen and amen. Listen, if you, as you are seated today, let me just be honest with you. If you came to First Assembly today looking for Pastor Brown to reach deep inside of him and draw out his inner Pastor Leroy, affectionately known at times as Lee Otis or Jojo Riggs, uh, I'm not going to probably be there today. So I'm just telling you up front. So there's, I probably won't have a lot of voice fluctuation. I will probably not try to emulate the pastors and teachers that I, that I tried to emulate many years ago. I have a heavy burden on my heart to share. Um, I'll probably read my notes a little bit more than normal today because some of the things that I am going to share with you, I want to be careful to my study. I don't want, I may miss I may, uh, I might confuse something if I'm not looking particularly at a certain area, so please forgive me in advance. And I'll just go ahead and say I'm probably personally an unlikely pastor to speak on this subject matter today. However, the reality is I am the pastor of this assembly, and I feel like I have a responsibility by my calling and by my position. I also have a conviction in my heart and my conscience bears me witness today to share these things. So there's a phrase or a statement that's been made in America and even around the world. It's made, it passed on Facebook, it's on church signs. It says, I stand with Israel. You've seen it, you've said it. I stand with Israel. It's become a rallying point for the support of the Israeli response to let's go ahead and be honest. It's caused all of our hearts to be heavy for seven days. The terrible terroristic murder, slaughter, and abduction of Israeli citizens by the Hamas terrorist organization. Tragically, in the generation in which we live in today, we see warfare, including terrorism, on the screens of the televisions in our own home. Right before breakfast, right before going to bed, any time during the day, you can bring up on your phone, make sure it's turned off, as a matter of fact, that right there on your news app, you can see tragic events that are happening around the world. Now, almost all of us are united in support of the state of Israel to respond militarily. They had to respond. And I'll tell you what, they will respond. They have, they are, and they will. And we knew that that would be the case. And we are, for the most part, united in support of the state of Israel to respond militarily. But I'm going to be honest, and some may think, well, Pastor, it's a little too early for you to be kind of taking this in the direction that you're going to take it today, and I probably would agree with you. However, I also know the tendencies that we have as the American culture, and that is when these things are new and fresh in front of us, that's all we think about for two or three weeks, but then after that, American culture, and even in the church, we have a tendency to drift, and these things are kind of tucked away in the corner and kind of semi-forgotten, and so I feel like I want to go ahead and share this today, and I've not prayed I have prayed and thought about this more than perhaps anything that I've thought about over the latter couple of weeks, and that's as this week and these things and these events have unfolded. And so, as, 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 we, have, uh, as we see this, here's a thought that I have. I, I, my concern is the military response of Israel, it's, that it's not going to necessarily settle the overall dilemma that those two people groups find themselves in. The Israelis and the Palestinians. Is Palestinians, And whether you like to acknowledge the Palestinians or not, that, that's in your thought. From my conversation today, I must do so. 
In actuality, here's the truth. Things can get worse. Because I think back, you know, I'm a military man myself, and I and, uh, have the son of a veteran. I'm a veteran. My three sons are in the military. So I have as much of a need to, to pray about these things as anyone. You know, the war on terror following 9-11, the war on terror immediately commenced with the war against al-Qaeda. But, you know, al-Qaeda, and after our war on terror, it kind of gave birth to ISIS. And I, I'm not sure that ISIS might not have been worse than al-Qaeda, obviously debatable, but it's just a thought that I have in the back of my mind. So anything that I share today should not be viewed as criticism of the Israeli military response. They have to, and I stand with Israel. I don't, I can't fathom, I can't fathom the families that endured what took place last Saturday night. My mind doesn't I want to in the sense of I want to have as much compassion and empathy as I can, but I don't know unless you were standing there that you can fully fathom the trauma of people that have endured such a thing. And uh, so for that and that military response, I stand with Israel. But at the same time, things are much more complicated, and things can also get worse. They can get worse. So... First of all, I'm going to kind of go into this a little bit. What does it mean when you say, I stand with Israel? The first question I just kind of wrote down, well, who is Israel? I want to touch base on that just a little bit. And then if you stand with someone, then you stand against someone else. And so if you're standing with one that's in some type of conflict, that just arbitrarily puts you in the context that you're standing against another. And in the immediate context, that's the Hamas. And so that is, and I may not say some of these words right, so if you're judging me, uh, then you're going to be really, really strained if you stay a part of First Assembly that you judged me on what, how I pronounce uh, words or names. You'll be, you'll be on edge the rest of your time that you're here. Um, but that's the controlling, political, militant, terroristic faction of the Palestinians that are living and are confined to Gaza City. Which is actually, in, in a little while I'll show you this, a very small area. So it's a little bit distinct. It's certainly distinct from Hezbollah who was, is in uh, southern Lebanon, just across the northern border of Israel. You know, long years ago, when we were uh, on our tour of Israel, the, our tour guide, for whatever reason, thought it a good idea to take us to see the northern border, the fence, the, the I, I can never say it, but the zone that separates uh, Lebanon, southern Lebanon, and Israel. And we literally could see the towers of Hezbollah while we're standing there talking to Israeli defense forces. Dr. Brassford looked around and said, I don't think this is a good idea. We need to, you know, get out of here and talk to the, the, um, the tour guide that said we need to get out of here. So, but, so Hamas is a little bit different from Hezbollah and actually a little bit different from the PLO, or I think now they may say the PLA, which is the political faction, the militant political faction of the Palestinians that are in the West Bank. I have a couple of thoughts that have been in my mind. Whether or not you receive this or not today, I've challenged myself. I said, can I look beyond those militant terroristic people groups, those militant terroristic people groups, and can I see the Palestinian people as well? Can I, can I do that? Now, right now, you and I have fresh images or thoughts. Even if you can't see it, you at least in the, your mind, you think on it. You have thoughts in your mind of Israeli citizens and especially children and families that have been slaughtered in, in brutal, ancient-like War, it's, 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 this is like the days of ancient history, the things, the atrocities that took place, things that our minds can't really 
fathom. But we have those images either in our mind because we saw a little measure of them or at least our mind thinks on them when we hear about those. But here's the reality. Those images will soon give way. Those images that you have in your mind of Israeli children suffering in such a way that we can't fathom it, those images will, will soon give way to Palestinian children dying and mothers grieving as the Israeli response and the bombing on buildings, the collateral damage that will take place. That's just the reality of it. Their corpses will be pulled from the debris of destroyed buildings as well. And so if you're just being honest, and everybody in the political world always tries to make a political gain at those moments, and so tragically at times, the, rep the, the, the Republican presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, her cry in response to this was, finish them, finish them, finish them. And that's strong words, it is. But it's not always that easy. As Israel prepares for the ground invasion, they gave a warning to the Palestinians in Gaza to evacuate. And you have to commend them for such a thing. They're, they're doing their very best to limit civilian casualties. But there's a problem with that, though. They don't have anywhere to go. Because Gaza is completely fenced in. To the north is Israel. To the east is Israel. To the west is the Mediterranean. To the south is Egypt. And Egypt says, we already have 9 million refugees. We don't want the Palestinians. That's why I'm saying it's, it's a complicated issue. It's got a lot of depth to it, church family. And things can get worse. That's why when I said, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray. They've mobilized the second aircraft carrier, naval aircraft carrier, and brought it into the region. I'm praying not only for what's happening there, but when you start mobilizing the United States military, and you have three sons in the military... And I hear some amens coming around in this building. You get agitated to pray. So I want to go ahead and I'm going to try today, I'm going to try to share with you some things that I learned in my studies, if I can, in my personal studies, to just try, just to try to help you maybe have a bigger picture. What you do with that is up to you, but I'm going to share. I want to share something that I think it's important sometimes just to see overall population numbers about today, not in, not in history. I, I might highlight a little bit today, but so... Look, we're going to put a map up just real quick. It's the very first map, if I can. And that's, that, that's, the, that's the, the modern state of Israel, as you see it right here, as it is today. And you see the darker green is the, the land that is under, um, you know, the Israeli government. But then the right, the larger to the right is the West Bank area, which the, Israel has some jurisdiction in the West Bank. And then to the left there, that little sliver is Gaza. And uh, which they don't as much ha have as much because they pass that over to the people groups that were dwelling there. But let me give you the population numbers that you can that will help you understand. And this is why it helps you understand a little bit of the nature of the conflict. So let's go to the Palestinians first. There's a little over th uh, three million Palestinians living in the West Bank area. There's a little over two million living in the Gaza area. So I'm looking on this map. I can turn here if that'll help the people on this side. But there's about 1.7 million Palestinians that are Israeli citizens. So you, there, there's a number of 1.7 million of them that are actually citizens of the state of Israel. 
So the total number of Palestinians that are living in the modern state of Israel, the land of Israel, and that map right there is about 7.1 million. Well, oddly enough, that kind of is about the same as the number of Jews that actually live in Israel as well. So there's about 7.1 million. So overall numbers, there's another 7.2 million Palestinians around the world bringing that number to about 14 million. And there's another, uh, there's a total of about... Uh, um, 9 million Jews, so the number of Jews outside the land of Israel is actually greater than the number that live in the land of Israel. There's about 16 million worldwide. But the point is, just real quickly, it's just kind of so you can see just a little bit of the challenges there. And so even for Gaza City, there's about 2 million people. The size of Gaza is the size of, just real quickly, it's the size of Washington, D.C., twice. So it's 25 miles north to south, it's 6 to 8 miles east to west. And then the size of the West Bank is about the size of the state of Delaware. And so that's just numbers for you to just kind of keep in your mind right there because that's, that's a lot of people in a small area. And anytime you get a lot of people in a small area with competing political views and religious views and different ideologies, that's a tough place. Are you all out there today? Right? And so... I'm going to take you, if I can, just the best of my ability on a little brief journey through history to see how we got here. Just a little bit. Just I've been in the history uh, in my class today, and so it's extremely complicated, and it is extremely controversial. And, but here's the reality. This is why I'm going to do this today. Oftentimes, it's understood only in our American culture, only from one of the two positions. So we are more familiar with Israel. We are, because from Israel, we have received... From the, from the Jewish people, the scriptures, and Jesus certainly was born of a Jew. And, and, uh, and, and so we, we are familiar, and we pray, and we pray. I, I prayed multiple times Wednesday night for the peace of Jerusalem. I prayed that prayer a hundred thousand times. I know that's an exaggeration in my lifetime. But most of us are more familiar with it. But we're not as familiar with what about the Palestinians. Where did they come from? Arguing about who's got a right to the land, that's not my point today. My point is, is just to say there's 7.1 million people here that Paul said, I need to pray that the Jews be saved. But then Paul also said, pray for all men to be saved. And I got 7.1 million Palestinians. So my, I should be, if I'm truly being true to the word of God, I should be praying for salvation for Israel and the Palestinians. Romans chapter number 9, it's oddly enough, this gives us and tells us a little bit about who is Israel. So tuck away just that one page real quickly. Romans 9, two verses. Because you and I know Israel as that was the name given to Jacob. Jacob the deceiver who had clutched his brother Esau's heel coming out of the womb and was the deceiver from birth. But when he wrestled with the angel beside the Jabbok River under the full light of the moon and his family on the other side, Jacob is going through all kinds of changes. And he held on and would not let go until the angel of the Lord blessed him. Remember, he said, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, up until this time you've been called Jacob, but from henceforth you shall be called Israel. We're more familiar with the history of that people. And Paul even addresses that in Romans 9, verse 4 and 5. Here's what he said. Who are the Israelites? Who are Israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God 
and the promises. How many know if you've been to our church the latter few weeks, I've been preaching about that. Right? In the book of Exodus, when God brought them out and a nation was born in a day, the closing up of the waters of the Red Sea. That's the Israelites, he said. Whose are the fathers? Meaning the patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Correct? Who are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. And then he says, who is over all? God bless forever. Amen. I thank God that there will come a day when every knee's going to bow. I didn't think my preacher was going to come on me, but it's about to. And every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul said he is blessed forevermore. So now to that group of people, we are more familiar. The physical descendants of Abraham, the practisers of the ancient religion of Judaism. But, as I've said before, and I have to be careful with this, because I don't want anything to deem this as being critical, but I, it's just a reality. I've often said that I personally don't believe that the exact modern state of Israel is not necessarily in full detail of the historical children of Israel. Because a lot of people don't even know things like this. The information I gave you today, that of the modern state of Israel, 1.7 million are not Jews. And they're, uh, they're Arabic or Palestinian. And many of them are Muslims. And so even the religious demographics of the Israel, Israeli uh, family. Let me go ahead and bring this up. I, I shared this a few years ago because I, after I came back from Israel I, and I shared, it sounds like I went on a tour by myself because I'm this great preacher and everybody went with me to Israel. No, but we went on a, gr a tour group of pastors that were given the right to go. It was eye-opening for me. And, and I found some things that just kind of grieved me because I thought, in our, in our American church culture, we just had this mindset that all the Jews are sitting over there and they're just praying and they're believing God that the, the Messiah is coming and they're following Torah and all these things. And I kind of look at the demographics and study it and I begin to realize that wasn't necessarily the case. So this, is, this information I'm sharing with you, you'll find most of this is produced by the Israeli you know, demographics and all this stuff. And that's where I got most of this here today. So this was some polls that were conducted in Israel between 2009 and 2019. It implied that 20% of Jewish Israelis do not believe in God. 11% sometimes think God exists, and 9% are convinced atheists. So 10% of the, right at 10% of the population are convinced atheists. Regarding other natural notions, 28% responded and denied the efficacy of prayer. 33% did not believe that the Jews are chosen people. 35% did not affirm that the law and the precepts are God-given. 44% rejected the notions of a world to come and afterlife. And 49% do not believe in a future coming Messiah. So it, it was kind of eye-opening to me the first time that I saw statistics like this. But now there is a part of them that is very much orthodox and that are waiting and believing and hoping for Messiah. And now in doing so, though, they're rejecting the Messiah who has come. But, but the reality is 8% of Israeli Jews define themselves as ultra-Orthodox. The overwhelming greatest portion of the culture describes themselves as secular. Secular can be interpreted any way that you want to. And so I, I don't necessarily know that that's just terribly important that you know that, but I just wanted you to know that doesn't mean we don't pray for Israel, but I want to pray the way we ought to pray. Paul said, my prayer... For Israel is that they might be saved. 
Y'all aren't shouting me down, but I'm preaching the truth real quickly. So let me give you a little bit of the information that I know about the Israeli people, because I've studied, especially following Jesus' death in 32 or 33, what happened to the people of Israel leading up to it? And even the time that Jesus lived, how many know it was very tumultuous in that time? Very, very tumultuous. And you had Rome had annexed Israel. Rome was in occupation. We all know that. Pontius Pilate is the one that gave the decree for the Jews to be able to, uh, to um, crucify Jesus. And so 70 A.D., I preached about it multiple times. I think it's an overlooked date on the calendar. But the effects of 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus comes after having encamped against the land of Israel for about three and a half years and actually famine has overrun the city of Jerusalem and finally by now the warfare takes a hold and they ultimately destroy the entirety of the city. The entire 800, uh, Josephus tells us on that date 800,000 Jews die almost in a single day. He said that blood flowed almost to the bridle of horses. It was a horrific day that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed including the burning of the famous rebuilt temple known at that time as Herod's Temple. And from there, the Jewish people commenced a scattering, not all. Many of them were taken by the Roman government and were sold into slavery, horrific slavery. Uh, some were allowed to live in the land. It was an exile. I think they call it diaspora. I used to say it in my pronunciation, diaspora. Finally, I realized that's not the way you say it. But again, it's the English language more than it is me. The diaspora, which is the exile, akin to the first one that had happened in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And so... Now, the, the land of Israel, though, at that time, Jews grieved the temple and they stayed. And there was another major event that took place in A.D. 32, about 60 years from that time, called the Bar Kokhba Revolt that I won't get into fully in its detail. But that was the time when really everything began to change because previously the Jews were still allowed to be in Jerusalem. But because of that uprising, the Roman Caesar Hadrian vehemently destroys the Jewish people. And this time, he doesn't just graze Jerusalem and the temple. He grazes so many, I think up to 900 villages in Israel were grazed to the ground, just, just totally wiped out. His attempt is to not allow a Jewish uprising to ever take place any other time in human history. And so Jews then were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, uh, even beyond the one that had taken place many hundreds of years uh, earlier. And so over the next what, 1,800 years, many Jews assimilate into different cultures and nationalities of the cities or the states that they dwelt in. Many maintained a, uh, some assimilated and some maintained a distinction of Jewish identity and religion. Some held to Judaism as the pharisaical form of Judaism is what emerged on the backside of the destruction of the temple. Now, many Jews integrated into European countries and with some, a very small number, still living in the land of Israel that was now known in history as Palestine. During the days of Rome, Rome viewed that area as Judea, but Hadrian is the one that changed the name of it because he wanted to take away anything that was associated with the Jewish culture. In 132, he called it, I think, Syria Palestinia, which was later than the Syria Palestinia was dropped in the 5th century, and it became known to the world as Palestine. Now, there are a lot of people that really support the land of Israel, don't even like to recognize that. I'm not arguing for it against it. I'm just telling you it's a part of history is all I'm simply doing here today. And so, as America was formed, many European Jews migrated to America. Uh, but, but here's where things began to shift. Anti-Semitism began to grow in Europe in the 1800s. And during that time period, a movement called Zionism began to form with the hopes of a Jewish return to their ancient homeland. 
And so a lot takes place, and it's in 150 years, you have to go and read this on your own. I've watched videos, I've gleaned, I'm just trying to make you a little bit more aware that it's a bigger picture and it's a very complicated issue that we're talking about. So the Turkish Ottoman Empire controlled what was then known as Palestine. But something was about to take place that was going to give them a light that they perhaps did not see coming, other than God would have seen it coming. And it was called, tragically, World War I. Because with World War I came the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. And with the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, the League of Nations appointed Great Britain in control of that particular area known as Palestine. And in doing so, the British were sympathetic to the plight of the Jewish people scattered, especially in Europe, facing at that time heavy anti-Semitism. And they began to allow the migration of Jewish settlers to begin to make their way back to the land of, to some Palestine, to most of us, the land of Israel. Now, here's where it gets a little bit complicated, and I'll explain that a little bit more. The reality is there was a residing population of Arabs in the area, living in the land. Now, some argue and say, well, it wasn't a state. It wasn't a state. I'm not trying to argue the, make the argument of the state of Israel versus the Palestinian state. I'm just simply saying people, people. There were people that were there, and Jews purchased land, and some accused them of seizing land. That's something that they're making. That's their accusations. I'm just trying to bring you into the things that I've gleaned. But tensions did begin to mount as the arriving Jew. I'll give you some numbers here in a moment that will probably help you in understanding that. Tensions did begin to mount between the Jewish settlers and what we call the Arabs or the Palestinians who had dwelt there historically over the latter. However long back you want to trace them, that's up to you, at least for the latter portion of that, uh, of that century, so for a quarter of a century. So following uh, World War II, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get ahead and then back up in a timeline here in just a little while. Following World War II and the realization that the Jews had been murdered in the Holocaust, global support for a Jewish state was rising, gaining support. A great number of Jews had continued to migrate. Great Britain had passed control of Palestine to the newly formed United Nations. And in 1947, in 1947, a resolution was presented that, I will go ahead and put a map up here real quickly, it was presented by the newly formed United Nations that there would be a two, a two um, state of the land, whatever, I, I can't find the words, but I'll just point out right here. So this is the 1947 resolution. All the blue was to be given to the Jewish residents of what they called the land of Palestine. All the red areas would be uh, given to the Palestinians or the Arabic, the people groups that were left in that center there, that little uh, yellow, that's Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would remain under international control. So if you watch the videos like I have, and especially those put out by CBN, they, they kind of tell the story through the Jewish perspective, and a lot of Jews wanted to reject that, but the leader of the Jews at that particular time, Ben-Gurion, I think if I say his name correctly, encouraged the people by these words. He said this, he said, a smaller or a lesser state of Israel is better than no state of Israel. And so he moved the Israeli people to accept it, but the Arabic community rejected it. And so 
In doing so, they look back on it. Actually, to the Palestinian people, that's really part of the conflict that exists today. The Palestinians actually call that Nakba. They, they, they call that a, a time in, uh, uh, when everything went wrong for them. And so, but the Jews accepted it, and the Jews went forward and announced on May the 14th that the state of Israel was reborn. And it was known all throughout the world. Jews celebrated, but within 24 hours, a war was launched. The Arabic nations came against the Jews, but the Jews had been planning for it for many months and years, and they were much more armed and equipped, and, and so they defended and they won. They won the war. It took a little about over a year to win that war. And so in 1949, there was an armistice that was signed by most of the Arabic nations. And so then when the, after the smoke is cleared, so the second map, if we can put it up here, will then show. This was a, so this was the land that was won. So in the yellow, in the yellow, that's the land that Israel then possessed, the Jews possessed. They actually gained greater land as a result of the war than they would have had they just simply signed a two-state agreement. Now, the darker green there, which is now what's called the West Bank, was actually controlled by Jordanian rule. It was under Jordanian rule. And the part that we see there, Gaza, that's under great contention today because that's where the Hamas are located at. I know I've got some high school students in here today, and I know that but it's important for them to see this is affecting their world too. Right, the youth that are here today. So in Gaza, Gaza was annexed to Egypt after that 1948 war that ended in 1949. And so that was kind of where the map of it is and was today. So they gained, so then, so very quickly, jump ahead. So as you can imagine, there's conflict, there's contention, but there's celebration amongst the Jewish people worldwide because for the first time in 2,000 years, the state of Israel... It's a power, it was a powerful moment, and if you, I've watched videos, and I wept with them in tears of rejoicing when I saw and, and saw some of the celebration, but it wasn't without conflict and bloodshed and pain on both sides. How many of you know war is just war? It's destructive, right? And so with it, just very, very quickly, as, as we see this, so about the next 20 years, things progress, but in 1967, we had another moment with a, a group of uh, Arabic nations come together and they have determined that they're tired of the Jews living in the land of what they call Palestine and they now launch uh, a war against Israel. This war doesn't last over a year. It lasts six days. Most of you know that as the six-day war. And this time, Israel once again prevails against the seven coalition nations, seven nations that co had created a coalition against Israel. And in six short days, so now show the map. The next map, and this time Israel gained control of the West Bank, maintained all their land, and also secured the Sinai Peninsula, but then allowed and gave it back to Egypt, and then, but also maintained control of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And then at some time from that time forward is when they relinquished a measure of control of, of Gaza and the West Bank into the Palestinians. And so the maps help you see just a little bit of the timeline and so but again it's just kind of bringing up just a little bit of awareness and so that takes us back that if we will put that very first map on if you don't mind and that's I think the last map I'm gonna have that's where we are at today 7.1 million Jews dwelling in the land of Israel and about 5.1 million or so 5.4 million excuse me Palestinians living in the West Bank in Gaza 
and then another 1.7 Arabs slash Palestinians living in the land of Israel. And there are some Israelis that are in the settlements that are called the West Bank. It's called the disputed areas. And so you gotta, that, you got to read all that on your own. So that's, that's a little bit of what we know of how we got here today from an Israeli perspective. And everyone in this room, that if you've been politically minded, any at all, you have prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. And you will continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's a divided city, right? right? And so because in 1967, Israel did gain control of, of Jerusalem. And I've often found this odd because, you know, the most sacred piece of property in Jerusalem was the Temple Mount to the Jewish people. And on top of the Temple Mount is what? It's the Golden Dome, the mosque of, uh, you know, the most famous, one of the most famous mosques in the world. And yet they chose to leave it in the hands of the Arabic slash Muslim community um, for, for whatever reason. But, but it, you know, so the point is, is that it's, a, it's very contentious and, it's, and it's not, that, that contention is not going away anytime soon, right? So this immediate war in context might, but let's go a little bit farther. I don't have a lot longer of just some of this historical stuff before I kind of, but who are the Palestinians? Well, that's a question that most even Christian Israel supporters often fail to actually look at. Most scholars find it more difficult to trace their ancient origin other than simply this, Middle Eastern Arabs. Do you know what Arab actually means? Does anybody here know what Arab actually means? It means from the desert. That's all it simply means. And so here's where you see what I said most scholars find it more difficult. Did you know Yasser Arafat, who was the previous now deceased leader of the PLO, he claimed ancestral heritage to that of the Jebusites. The Jebusites was one of the original seven nations in the land of Canaan when the children of Israel came in, you know, 1,500 years earlier, that, or excuse me, 3,500 years earlier. And that's disputed, obviously, but it's something that they brought up and he brings it up. And so, you know, the, the reality is, is that on a biblical fact, David did purchase the land for the temple from a man named Aruna the Jebusite. And so Arafat was, was, was kind of tapping into the awareness that all the Jebusites or all Canaanites were not destroyed in the occupation of the land. So control of the land and of that region of what they call Palestine, others, the land of Israel, changed hands many times over the year. So from Jewish to Christian to Muslim, Rome had it for a season. It's passed. The city of Jerusalem has been taken over and passed to someone else's hands over 25 times in its history. When you see it there, you'll see it layer upon layer. We were privileged to be able to see it. If we were to narrow it down, we might trace their heritage to the... If you say, well, narrow it down, Pastor Brown. Perhaps we could trace their heritage to the Arabic-speaking people who dwelt in the land prior to and immediately upon Great Britain gaining control in 1920, because I'll give you a little bit more information. So in 1922, when Great Britain had gained control after the end of World War I, and Great Britain was sympathetic to the plight of the Jews in Europe and around the world and was going to begin to allow them to migrate in greater numbers. In 1922, a, a uh, census was taken. And you'll find this. I didn't get this on a Palestinian website. I got this on my Jewish virtual library that has the historical statics, statistics from the state of Israel. That in 1922, that the population of what was called Palestine at that time was 763,550 of which 89% were Arabs and 11% were Jews at that time in 1922. But again, the, the, the um, Great Britain began to allow a heavy migration of Jewish people, and that number began to shift. And that's obviously what caused 
not, not that it was that, that caused, it's just when one people group began to get, you know, go from here and the other people group, I don't want to say began to diminish, that number, their numbers didn't necessarily diminish, but their locality and the land did. Certainly we can say that that's a part of the overall picture. And so let me go just into this just a little bit. So let me skip down for some of for the sake of time. Here we are today for just a moment. We have two people groups claiming right to the land. Two people groups now of almost equal number. One particular uh, questions the degree of the right to even exist. The other maybe not as much. Both have larger bodies of people dwelling outside the land with 7 million Palestinians living abroad and 9 million Jews. Most American Christians have almost complete allegiance to the modern state of Israel. And here's where I'm going to start meddling just a little bit, as they say. My concern is, is that sometimes we're not as much concerned for them, the Jewish community, as human beings, but rather it's our dispensational theology that drives us to support them. Because dispensa Christian Zionism, Christian dispensational theology, has taught us that the Jews must resettle the land prior to the rapture of the church. And so, therefore, we support Israel because we want to see the land re-inhabited by the Jews so that the church can then be raptured and then God can deal with the Jews during the seven-day or seven-year tribulation period. And so, that's kind of it in the nutshell. Now, some have genuine empathy and compassion, but I'm, I'm afraid if we're not careful, some of us do not. Most evangelical Christians uh, the reality is don't carry the same empathy or sympathy for the plight of the Palestinians as we do for the Jews. I'm going to say it one more time because I didn't get an amen. At the end of the day, I don't care. There's 7.1 million here and 7.1 million here. And the apostle Paul said, pray for Israel that they may be saved. And the same pen that penned those famous words said, pray for all men. To be saved. So here's the truth of the matter. Here's what I've learned about the Christian community. Often we pronounce things like we support Israel, but we don't know the far-reaching effect of that, and we don't even know why at times. Often we're so quick to pronounce judgment upon Palestinians or even Muslims because of their opposition to the Jews. But I want to read to you just a little bit about, about opposition to the Jews for a moment. I want, to, I want to just share with you and just, just some of these words for just a moment. So here's, here's, what, here's what someone that hated the Jewish people, he would write. He would say, what then shall we do? And I'm going to leave out a couple words because if I put these words in, it would tell you who I'm talking about. What then shall we do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, we know not about their lying and blasphemy and cursing. It's hard to even read this. We cannot tolerate them among us. And if we do not wish to share in their lies, their curses, and their blasphemy. In this way, we cannot quench the inextinguishable fire of divine rage. Perhaps we may save a few of them from the fire of hell, but we must not. He said, we must not seek vengeance because they're being punished a thousand times. And here said, he said, let me give you my advice. Let me tell you what we should do. What, what should happen to the Jews? Their synagogue should be set on fire. Whatsoever does not burn them up should be burn it up should be covered or spread abroad with dirt so that no one will ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. Secondly, their homes should be broken down and destroyed. 
for they perpetuate the same things that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put uh, out, uh, under one roof or in one stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Burn and deprive them of their prayer books and their Talmuds for such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy. Fourthly, the rabbis should be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anymore. On and on, you can see where I'm going. To sum it up, dear princes and nobles, to have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we will be free of this insufferable, devilish burden to Jews. Those words sound like the writings of an extreme Muslim cleric, don't they? An extreme terrorist. But those words were penned by none other than Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation. So when here today, when we, we so quickly in the American Christian church, if we're just being honest, this thing's been cyclic. When the church was started, the Jews persecuted the Christians. But then when the Christians outnumbered the Jews, the Christians began to persecute the Jews. And so now we have three major people groups, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, you're called to love all of them. You're called to tell them that they're all, they have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for the Muslim, Muhammad could not provide access to the eternal God. And for the Jew, keeping the Torah cannot give them righteousness in the eyes of God. For there's one God, and I read you the passage, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. That's our responsibility as believers in Christ Jesus. So as I close today, one of the heaviest sermons, the heaviest burdens that I've ever brought to this pulpit. Our affection is first and foremost for Christ. Who he loves, we love. Who he died for, we tell them the truth of the gospel. And last I read, he died for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Now, we support Israel's right to defend themselves and to attempt to destroy the terrorist group Hamas. We do. But it doesn't change the reality that five to seven million people live behind walls in impoverished conditions. And typically, they're confined there because of the extreme acts of the jihadists. The reality is there's not a good solution. By birth rate, the Palestinians for the next 15 years are going to increase faster for a time than the Jews in the land of Israel. Here's the tragedy of the challenge to the Palestinians. I hate to say this, but nobody wants them. Their Islamic faiths make them less desirable and westernized just being honest with you so here's my conclusions from me my heart you may take this sermon and throw it away I don't know or it may spark you to read and study and pray more fervently than you ever have like I have in the latter few days 
For me, I have little to no compassion for the terrorist murderers who slaughtered innocents in the way in which they did. I have empathy for their soul. I remember watching our American soldiers who fought the war on terror. I remember watching. I, I was in the military during the initial stages of some of this, and not, not of the war on terror, but in, and, um, I was in the military back during the days of Desert Storm. And I was in the Air Force, so I wasn't involved in combat and things of that nature. But in the war on terror, I remember seeing some things about some of our military soldiers who had a mission assigned to them, and they were getting ready to go out into their tank or their Humvee or their, their helicopter, whatever means they were, and they were going to be in combat that day, that day. It, blood would be shed that day. But before they went, the chaplain led them in prayer and they bowed their heads and they prayed for the souls of the men that they would kill in battle and in combat that day. So I have little to, there's a part of us, we have compassion, not for what they've done, but, it, but, but as a Christian, we still, we know, we know with every bullet that that Israeli pulls a trigger on, slaughters that Hamas that he immediately will descend into the darkness into the darkest pit of hell and we're grieved we weep but I'm going to be honest with you our Christian compassion we should have compassion for people who will suffer who've suffered previously and who suffer now even during the retribution as a Christian you know what you and I are called to do? We're called to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Can I say that one more time? As a Christian, what are you called to do? You're called to be abhorred by that which is evil, but to cleave to that which is good. You know what you're called to do? To live as, as much as possible, to live peaceably. You know what you're called to do? You're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that rain? That's God's favor on my sermon. I just, I felt it right there. I felt it. Can I get a witness? At, at least one. There's at least one or two witnesses over here. Here's, here's our prayer, and I'm closing. I mean that, and I know y'all don't believe me. To pray, this is the heaviest sermon that I've ever brought to this, to this pulpit today. To pray that the eyes of both the Jew who is blinded by the God of this world will see Jesus. Pastor Brown, how could you say that thing? I'm just repeating what Paul the Apostle said. Paul said there's a veil, there's a veil on their eyes, their face, till this very day, till this very day. We're to pray, we're to pray for the Jew that he will know that Messiah has already come, that Jesus Christ came as a fulfillment of the covenant promises of Abraham. Really, the land is not the reward. Eternal life is the reward, glory to God. I'm for Israel in the land, but I'm much more for Israel being in eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So we pray. Come on, we pray. Amen? We do. I wrote this question. I'm also to pray, or not question, but I'm to pray to love my neighbor as myself, but I'm also instructed to love my enemy. And sometimes that's both Jew and Gentile. I pray, I pray that both the eyes of the Jew and the eyes of the Palestinians are open to the reality of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer here today. I wrote down a couple questions as I close. One may ask, what would Christ do? Some would say, here's what he would do. Some would say he, as a Jew according to the flesh, he would call down fire and destroy those oppressing Israel. 
He didn't with the Romans. He didn't with the Samaritans, even when his own disciples wanted to. His own disciples said, they've rejected you. We're going to pray that fire will come from heaven and destroy them. And Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but he came to save them and to give his life as a ransom for all. Let me tell you these words, these words right here. These words were not written by the guy with the rainbow hair on a poster board that stood underneath the goalpost and NFL games around the world in the 80s. He copied those words. Here's those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John records those words. John didn't say those words. Jesus himself said, God loves the world. Paul said, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Here's a prayer I have for you. Here's what I pray. I take it right from Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. You say, Pastor Brown, how do I pray? You said pray for the Jew, pray for the, the Gentile, pray for the Jew, pray for the Palestinian. I love what the writer of the book of Revelation said. He said he's looking for a day when the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's my prayer, God. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus that the hour and the day is going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ will reign in triumphant glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my prayer. And so you and I, I want you to pray. You can say, I support Israel, obviously, and you can pray for Israel, but I honestly believe we have to pray beyond that. And we pray for all men everywhere to repent. And our hearts should still be grieved. When the days ahead, those images shift from Israeli casualties to Palestinian casualties. Because we have to weep with those who weep. We abhor that which is evil, and we cleave to that which is good. Caleb, are you, are you my man today? Can to play? You, Pastor Darrell, Papa Darrell? Doesn't matter. I appreciate all of you. I can honestly say, I support Israel today. I support their right to defend themselves. I pray for Israel. You missed a great place to say amen. I pray for Israel. But I also pray that the veil that's on the heart of many, I read you the statistics, could be lifted. I pray for the secular Jew, the agnostic Jew the atheist Jew, and the Zionist Jew to come to genuine faith in Christ. That's my prayer today. But I'm going to be honest. This may rattle a few of your theology. I pray for the extremist Muslim. This New Testament was penned by an extremist. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew, but he was an extremist. He was persecuting the church. He was a jihadist. He had pronounced war on a sect within his own Judaism called the Nazarenes. So I pray for the extremist Muslim that as long as they've got breath, 
They have an opportunity to repent of their sins and their wickedness and turn to Christ. But I especially pray, in conjunction in the context of Muslim, I pray for the peaceful Palestinian to come to faith in Christ. I just think that's what we're called to do, church family. I think we're called to go beyond. Not just be in the moment. Why, why is it not just in the moment? Because this is bigger than the moment. Bigger than moment. 30 days from now, you're going to be headed into Thanksgiving. What's happened recently might be way in the back of your memory. You might not even be thinking about it. After that will come Christmas. You'll be in the holidays. You'll be moving. You'll be doing all this. So now is the time for me to charge you, to exhort you, to encourage you. The Word of God, I'll go back to it. It's my text. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I pray that prayer today. But in like manner, in like manner, I exhort that first of all, Prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. For God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I challenge each one of my church family and those that are visiting our church today. Pray for Israel, but pray for beyond Israel. I think we should stop and pray right here, right now. Before I give one final invitation. I told you this wasn't a, a jumping and shouting sermon. My heart's been heavy this week like yours has as well. Today, Father, as a group of men and women. As a group of men and women. We've gathered in a house that we've dedicated to worship. We, we recognize today our Hebraic roots in Christianity. We do. We recognize that according to the book of Romans chapter 11, we were, we were grafted into the olive tree. And we draw from the root and the fatness of the tree. We remember Paul's exhortation that said, because we have received of their spiritual things, we should sow and bless them with our carnal things. Because as we show them mercy... Their hearts could warm to Christ. That's the exhortation. We weep with those who weep. Father, we can't even think that we can identify with the families that endured the horrors of what took place last Saturday. Only the living God can identify. Only you. I pray that you comfort those who mourn. Those who grieve, whose heart is broken. I pray for them today, God. I pray. And I pray that somehow, some way, in the midst of everything that's going on, the true light will shine. The light of the love of Christ. Yeshua, the son of David. Jesus, who is the Messiah, I pray, Lord, that their hearts could be drawn to him. 
But Father, today I pray beyond. I pray for the Palestinian. I pray first of all for those whose families are going to suffer loss, great loss. Mothers who will weep over the death of their children. Wives whose husbands won't come home. I pray for them. I pray for the souls of the extremists. I pray that somehow in the midst of such of a spirit of antichrist, even on both sides, that the hearts of the Muslim could be open to Christ. I do know, Father, that in the West Bank, and perhaps even in Gaza, there is a little bit of a light in the sense that there are some Christians. Let each one of those Christians have a bright and shining light. Let them be a bright and shining light. Oh, God, we look to you, the Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge today that this is so much bigger than just a few images that come on the screen that we watch after we've eaten our meal and we sit down in front of the news or the article we read on the app off of our phone. So much bigger it's far bigger than the sermon I preach today. It's far bigger than my theology or my personal political ideology. It's far bigger. God, I didn't even take the people into the depths of the spiritual side of a lot of those things. I just took them to the place where we were exhorted to pray for all men because that's what we're called to do. And as difficult as it is at times, we're called to love all men. And even then, Paul said, and as difficult as it is at times to live peaceably with all men, as much as life within you. So God, we acknowledge today the complications of everything that I've mentioned. It will go far beyond my sermon, far beyond. Move our church family to be intercessors. Move our church family to have compassion Move our church family to be merciful. Because a Jew, by the name of Yeshua, said, Blessed are the peacemakers, number one, for they shall see God. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So God, I pray that that's how we'll live our lives as believers. I'm going to leave this in the hearts and the minds of the people. What they choose to do with what I've given them today is between you and them, God. Whether they have a quick download into some type of mental dump and it's moved and forgotten, or whether it stirs them to read and study and pray and ponder, I'd leave it between you and them. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. The last part of my sermon said this. Right after I said, I will pray for Israel and I will pray for the Palestinians, I also said this, and I will pray that you, if you don't know him, you will come to faith in Christ. There might be a person under the sound of my voice today with the heaviness of the hour on our hearts who doesn't know Christ, doesn't know the Lord. And you would say, Pastor Brown, would you pray with me? You said you'll pray for the Palestinian. You said you'll pray for the, the Israeli. Let me get it in the right order. You said you'd pray for Israel, and you, then you'd pray for the Gentile. I will, but what about me? That may be your thought. Pastor, would you pray with me? 
Pray with me in my, my situation, my faith. I could love the Lord with all my heart. If that's you here today, you say, Pastor, pray with me today. Slip your hand up that I might see your hand. I'll pray with you right where you're at today. Is there anyone under the sound of my voice as I wait on you for just a moment of time? Is there anybody here today that says, Pastor, pray for me? I'm going to ask you to stand up with me today, church family. Isn't the Lord good? All the time. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind. He's called you to be a mediator and an intercessor as his son is. He's called you to be a prayer warrior. He's called you to pray and believe and to be a bright and a shining light. He's called you to show love, grace, and compassion. Come on. He's called you to, to love <laughs> not just those who love you, but to love your enemies. To do good to those who persecute you and despitefully use you. To show love to the Israeli people. And to show love if opportunity presents itself to the Palestinian people. Which we will say the Gentiles. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's our conviction. That's our calling. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Walk in the faith of the word of God. Father, I bless the people today. If there's any faith in me at all to speak the faith of God over them today, they've sat and allowed me to share what was on my heart for a long time. And I have a long time. Preached a long sermon here today. My heart is heavy. Nothing's going to change. I'll go to bed tonight with some of the images and the thoughts on my mind. And so will some under the sound of my voice. But we're going to get up tomorrow and we're going to do what you've called us to do. We're going to pray. Come on, somebody. We're going to pray. I know that in the irreligion of some of the Israelis that I mentioned, some of them don't believe that God answers prayer. But we do. We believe that if we call upon the name of the Lord, that he's a mighty God. He's a righteous tower. Caleb said, well, the righteous will run into it. We'll run into his pavilions. We'll pray for men to know him through Christ. For I remember the writer John said, He that has the Son has the Father. God, my prayer is that people will know the Son. Magnify the name of Jesus in this house, and I bless the people. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's children said amen and amen. And